Before we start the show today, we are rapidly approaching 400 episodes, and we would love to hear your thoughts. Whether you've listened to the show for once or for 400 times for that matter, we would love it if you could leave us a review over on iTunes, Spotify, or your preferred podcast app. Uh, leave us a review and a comment, and we do, do love reading those reviews. Thanks, everybody. Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights, episode 398. I'm David Breer and we are going to be talking about the B word today. Uh, Because as of one week ago today, Brexit has actually officially happened now. With me, I have my colleague and co-host, Mr. Ross Gallagher. How's it going, Ross? Yeah, very well, thank you. I mean, this is a bit of a funny topic. I feel like we've been sort of talking about it forever, but um, as a a non-British citizen, then um, how has it felt for you over the last week? Um, I don't think I put the the sort of emphasis on us officially leaving, at least in my head. And, and, you know, maybe actually this is something that people can relate to, this idea of just being kind of fatigued by the whole thing. I'm not really one for melancholy, but I, I did sort of reflect a little bit, and I've had a lot of opportunities coming up, you know, based on sort of things that exist because of, of of the European Union. So, for example, the Erasmus program, I studied abroad in Spain. I then moved over to um, the UK, got an awesome master's from a top university. I was able to work in an awesome company that matched my ambition, my view for the industry. And I kind of think the sad element for me is that, you know, people won't be able to do that in the future or may not be. I mean, we don't know. I guess that's the thing. We sort of don't don't know to a certain degree. I mean, there's there's so many um, different angles on this. We're going to try and unpick many of them. And it's interesting, like you say, to sort of uh, unpick personal background yeah. and actually what we're sort of seeing in in sort of all many all, all different types of walks of life to a certain degree. Um, and naturally, I mean, me and you could natter about this forever, Ross. Oh, I'm sure, but um, we couldn't really do this justice alone. And we've been joined this week by some pretty damn awesome guests to talk this through, both making welcome returns to the show. So first up, we have Emily Nicole, the technology editor at City AM. Emily, how's it going? Um, good. I've just been to the dentist, but I'm sure nothing's going to be more painful than the topic we're about to discuss today. So, <laughs> Well, it might leave you drooling too, but uh, let's yeah. see how we get on. Uh, next up, we have James Hurley, Enterprise Editor at The Times. How's it going, James? Very good, thank you. And I'm pleased to say I've had my Irish citizenship through today. Um, so I'm celebrating still being a European citizen, so that's good. Welcome to the club. <laughs> Wonderful timing, I guess. Okay, before we get into the discussion, we'll be doing a bit of a throwback. We're going to be throwing all the way back to the very first episode of Fintech Insider, which was published on the 12th of July, 2016. Damn, that's where this all began. Bizarre. Uh, That show was a Brexit special. What a topic to begin with, where myself, Jason Bates, Simon Taylor, and Chris Skinner talked about our predictions and implications of Brexit. This is what I said about it, and we'll get into it now. I guess, you know, from my perspective, you know, the waking up on the morning and sort of seeing that it's changed, it, I didn't see this coming in any way, shape or form, did you? You know, it kind of feels like it, it feels like a, a victory for sort of bad politics over, over really a campaign of giving people sort of facts and, and decision making. You know, I kind of feel like from my side, sort of aside from the outcome, it kind of feels like the whole process for me, it feels a little bit disappointing. You know, I, I'm, I'm less sort of feeling a little bit embarrassed by the process in the country at the moment. 
embarrassed by my country. How young and how foolish was I? Um, but I mean, I still stand by that, if I'm honest. I, I kind of feel like the the process that was underway at that time, and even actually if you kind of look at what happened in the general election more, more recently, I'm not really convinced that the Remain campaign put up a, a strong enough, uh, sensible enough collection of evidence and, and motivation to actually give people a, a real alternative than, than actually what they were doing. So many of the people who I think were voting for Brexit was because the Brexit party or everything that, uh, you know, Boris and uh, and co were, were sort of, uh, you know, shouting about back in the day, that was a very clear articulation of, of what was to gain from leaving. But actually, I'm not sure enough has really ever been done about what was, what was good about staying. Mm. Um, and I, I guess particularly in the fintech sense, I mean, we're, we've done quite a good job. So it feels like we're sort of walking away from a lead here. But I mean, Ross, maybe starting with what happened that night? Because, I mean, I went to bed early. What, what, what did you do on the, uh, in, in 2016 with, on Brexit Eve? Right, so it, exactly the same. And, and, and I made the point before we started recording that I would consider myself to be quite engaged politically and I, I, I tend to, to, to follow these what are, you know, quite big political events. And I was so, so sure in my own head of what the result was going to be. I went to bed, I didn't stay up, I didn't watch it. And then to the point where I woke up the next day, I misread the push notification from BBC News on my phone because that's how sure I was. And then I had a, a, a sort of split second and, and I reread it and I thought, hang on. And, 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 you know, I made the point as well as that politics was, was typically boring when I was growing up. This was, you know, one of the very first big events that I kind of went, I don't know what this means. I don't know what the future looks like off the back of this. But I would stand behind David Yor sentiments in that very first episode i remember being left with the strong feeling of of being cheated somehow and i think that's because the the view of what it looked like to stay um was well defined it was status quo it was what we already knew whereas um the view of what it meant to leave was entirely undefined which meant you could paint that picture, the Leave campaign could paint that picture however they wanted. So it was easier to, to sort of engage people and to, to sort of play in their imaginations. And I think it was kind of, it was the year of political disinformation, right? It was mm-hmm. the year that that all started. We hadn't really done elections or referendums or anything like that where you could outright call some one of the sides a liar or saying that this isn't true. And it only really started to take effect properly after the fact and after we'd left that, yes, this thing wasn't true, this statement was incorrect. And then Trump happened after that. Um, but so He took it no, to a whole yeah, new level at that point, yeah, didn't exactly. he? Exactly. <laughs> but so nobody, I don't think either side really came out of the referendum feeling like they had a good idea, even with the status quo side of things, because what you were being told Brexit was going to mean wasn't just undefined, it was in some parts wrong, mm-hmm. it wasn't true. Mm. And so even those who had voted for Brexit might not have felt that they knew what was going to happen. Mm. I think on such a big question, a referendum always favours the kind of insurgent force over the status quo because it's kind of hard to articulate the big benefits of something you've already been living in, but you have got this idea of how your life might improve. And I think that's what the Leave campaign did quite well and what those of us who were, who were Remainers, and I sort of come myself that in that I voted Remain, uh, didn't really anticipate, although I was slightly less surprised than you, Ross, I think purely because where I'm originally from, which is kind of 
East London, Essex, Hinterland. That was one of the very few London boroughs that voted for Brexit. And uh, in the run-up to the vote in 2016, when I used to go back there, and if you were in the pub and stuff, some of the conversations you'd be having, I'd be thinking, well, I really wouldn't be surprised if this area at least votes out. And I'd always thought that area was a bit of a proxy for lots of other parts of England as well, and 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 so it came to pass. But yeah, I just don't think that that the Remain side got its message across well as as exactly as you were saying, Ross. Mm. I mean, sort of bringing this down to to financial services. Obviously, this is kind of what uh, we all sort of look at day to day. I mean, probably not since Friday, or there have been a few headlines kind of come out, haven't they? Particularly with I think Revolut's come out. Um, but have you seen any major sort of companies coming out and going, "Hey, we're going to have to really like you know do this now." I think Revolut's the big one. So they're moving their payment operations to Dublin. So, um, you know, there's, of course, you've got Paris, Frankfurt, et cetera, et cetera, sort of queuing up to, to, to welcome these guys in and sort of grow out their, their, their sort of fintech industries. Ireland, you know, Dublin in particular, have talked about um, creating tens of thousands of new jobs off, off the back of Brexit. Um, and I think that's still just coming from the uncertainty around passporting, um, you know, those types of issues, which again, just isn't going to be defined until the end of this year. And I think that's a real issue. That's more of the same, isn't it? In that we've already seen, I think, movements by a couple of hundred, uh, a couple of hundred of banks and financial institutions to move at least some people over to other centres, yeah, Dublin, Luxembourg, Paris, Frankfurt, etc. And I think that's what we'll continue to see. And maybe for the years ahead, depending on the outcome of, of you know, what passporting is going to look like, etc. I don't actually think it's going to be some of the doomsday predictions that we've seen of people lock stock moving out of the UK. It's more a kind of damaging drip drip effect that maybe less of your growth is in London and maybe you set up new operations in different parts of Europe. So, you know, and you can't, you can't, you know, you can't prove a negative. So we'll never know how many jobs this has cost the UK fintech mm. sector. But I do think it's net going to be quite damaging, but just not in a kind of like some, you know, in some of the doomsday predictions may be a little bit wild. I mean, we can at least assume now that most fintech companies will have two headquarters. I think it will be unlikely that many London fintech startups now or scale-ups will have a London headquarters and not have a European headquarters to go side by side. And it will be an equal split. Because if you're going to have to be managing two sets of authorization from regulators and two sets of operations both in terms of like staff engineering all the rest of it i mean like nobody can really consider themselves like fully london-based anymore yeah Mm. and i i think um it will depend as well on on what type of brexit we end up with at the end of this year you know there's kind of three potential scenarios we either get a, a free trade agreement and we sort of move forward on that basis or we go hard brexit or we extend the transition period, which Boris has said he's not going to do. So maybe technically there's only two. So, you know, you have to expect that in a hard Brexit scenario and what that will do to the the value of the pound, et cetera, et cetera, that the repercussions there, the negative repercussions will be worse. I think in the meantime, I think you will get people who will sit tight and sort of see how the negotiations are going before they make any decisions about, you know, moving people at all. Mm. I wonder about the the longer term impact. Um, Revolut cited Brexit specifically for this this move, uh, moving their their payment ops guys to um, to Dublin, um, saying that they want to have 
the um, their customers in Eastern European countries on their Lithuanian license, Western European countries on their Irish license. So that kind of sounds like a hedge that makes sense. But I think the the longer term impact is where we might see some mm. some real issues. It's quite interesting. We're seeing the access to financial services market being traded off with something like fishing. So access to UK waters, you can have access to uh, financial services markets if you give us access to your waters. Can Boris Johnson sell that one to leave voters? Mm. Cod for banking. That's a, it's a pretty pretty decent swap. I mean, back in 2016, back on episode one of Fintech Insider, Jason Bates argued that Fintech is actually probably one of the ones who will be best at handling this change, whereas actually the big incumbents might be ones who are probably taking the biggest hit. Um, let's have a listen to that now. And I think that the uncertainty is, hey, you know, startup life, fintech life is full of uncertainty. Um, so if, if there's any size of organization that's best positioned in order to look for new opportunities, you know, new, new business uh, approaches, then it's small fintech startup. I think it's, it's a much more interesting question for the, the larger organizations, the incumbent legacy banks. We're looking at, at longer term strategies, you know, over the next three to five years. I think that that's a phenomenally difficult uh, place to be in. What do you think? Do you agree with Jason? Is the fintech players kind of handling this a little bit better than the banks are right now? I guess that, um, you know, in fintech, everything is in flux. That probably makes sense to a certain degree, right? Yeah, I agree. And, and, and fintechs were, were born out of the, the financial crash. So I think resilience is in their DNA. I mean, so we've, yeah, I mean, I definitely agree with Jason in that respect in that most fintechs that at least I speak to have already kind of got a European base set up. They were kind of preparing for this before the actual date came about, whereas we're only really starting to see the headlines from people like JP Morgan and Citi and HSBC where they're moving jobs out in the last few months. They're getting a Paris headquarters or something and they're going to move. I think HSBC and Bank of America are both moving about a thousand jobs to Europe now. Um, But that's all still very recently made public or at least very recent decisions compared to those who have been preparing for years and that's why fintech startups will be better placed to keep going a lot of tech companies in the uk and at least young business leaders are still very bullish on their chances after brexit in terms of business confidence so fintech ceos bullish on their outcome who would have thought it (laughs) but i mean it's good to see though that there is still a uh, a view that it's not going to impact them. And I, and I guess, I mean, from London's perspective, we probably haven't seen a downturn in investment, have we? We've still seen lots of money coming in. There's still lots of companies sort of doing very well. Um, but it, uh, to your point, um, we can never see that other version of the world, can we, James? Like, There's never that sort of sneak peek into the box of what we could have won. But it's hard to tell whether things would be in a much more advanced space because you surely, I mean, from a fintech perspective, they must have spent millions, but big banks must have spent tens, you know, possibly 50 plus million on strategies and, you know, planning and moving things around, you know. Well, the good news from London as a fintech center point of view is, as you say, you know, the the investment numbers are pretty remarkable, actually. There's an unprecedented amount of venture capital coming into London. And I think that will have actually a protective effect for the fintech sector. Um, You're seeing a lot of interest from US venture capital firms of having London as their main overseas base. So actually, maybe you have, as you say, Ross, uh, a base in Dublin or a base in Frankfurt for passporting reasons. But it's a reason to keep a presence in London, indeed, maybe even to bring one here so that you've got that network network effects with with the VCs. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, and I think like on that point, um, a lot of people worried that 
because of Brexit, access to talent would obviously fall. And that would be one reason why VCs wouldn't want to invest in London because companies in London wouldn't be getting the same access to high skill talent that they used to get. But because, I mean, one major factor that usually gets cited is because of the fall in the pound over the last year, the L- London has become an incredibly good place to invest for at least US VCs um, because they're getting more bang for their buck. They're getting the same level of stellar company that comes up with great ideas and has great people, but it's all coming for a lot cheaper. And that might be one reason why we had the best year on record for investment in fintech startups and tech startups more generally in London and why London fintech startups got had a big jump in VC investment last year when actually investment into US companies and Chinese companies in particular fell sharply. Yeah. Um, I, I think, and that, for me, that, that investment is going to continue this year. I think you've got, you know, London is incredibly well positioned, like you said, great ideas, um, sort of innovative um, companies that are doing great things that have access to established incumbents that have access to the regulator that have access to great talent etc 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 so i think that's going to continue again i think the only uncertainty or the only question that i would raise is you know what happens in the event of a hard brexit or even a hardish brexit um at the end of this year and 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 you know it's it's frustrating to keep bringing it up but we just don't know right the one thing about the hard brexit scenario is that that is kind of what the eu fears as well isn't it the big eu fear is basically singapore on sea right on their doorstep and sure. we create this very deregulatory environment in order to attract people and somehow we've still got a back door into the market and that's why they would put all the walls up to stop us getting in. But regardless of that, they do not want that to happen. And so that's my only little kind of note of optimism of how we might be able to get to some kind of vaguely sensible arrangement with the EU, even though it does look quite difficult at the moment because we're coming at it from such different perspectives. I agree. I, I think the other point I'd, I'd raise, Emily, on, on what you said about talent as well is, all right, let's just assume that we get this ideal Brexit at the end of the the end of this year and we get visa and immigration policies and all of that bang on uh, how many are we going to lose diversity in talent you know diversity and experience in cultures in mindsets coming from other countries even if we get all of that right just because people feel unwelcome and i'd say it's probably inevitable that some of that will go not not even not even if we get it right just the lack of freedom of movement that we have now um, you just won't have as many people opting to move over because even if a visa system is great, it's still more hard work than just moving. Um, so we'll definitely lose some of the culture aspect and the diversity aspect. That is one reason why London is such a great place to be and such a great place to start a company. Um, but having said that, I mean, uh, like assuming, as you said, we get the best situation going forward, I think a lot of CEOs now uh, that helm these companies recognize the value that culture and diversity brings to a company and how it can make you better and you develop better products. And so I don't think that they would necessarily stop pushing to achieve that. I don't know where, where the bar will get set now, but I think a lot of companies will still feel like culture and diversity are two very important values and tenets to have. And so we'll want to seek better employees abroad and still diversify their pool. I think that's right. And uh it looks like it's going to be some sort of mixture of a salary cap, which we don't know where it'll be set, you know, sort of £30,000-ish at the moment. Maybe that will move combined with a points-based system. So if you're in fintech, for most of your staff, you're certainly going to be above that salary level and presumably there'll be some sort of argument you can make about the quality of people you're bringing in. You know, I would be much more concerned if I was in social care 
hospitality industries like like that than I would mm. be if I was running a fintech company. Mm. Yeah, it's like how you said, Ross, earlier about the, the big short quote and how it's always the poor and the immigrants that get blamed at the end. They're not necessarily going to get blamed for this, but they're going to be hit the hardest yeah. because with a salary cap like that, the people that do some of the hardest working jobs in this country, they won't be able to fill the same talent gaps that they do now. Our unemployment might be at a real low at the moment, but who knows what that'll be in a few years' time. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it doesn't seem, again, it doesn't seem like it's a really clear thing to understand, does it? There's been a lot been done to exceptional visas or exceptional talent or all of these different thing, things, but the quantity of those things that are being talked about are minuscule in comparison to the, the I mean, just from our perspective, you know, we're going to double in size this year, we're going to double in size next year at 11FS. Like, if suddenly all of the, you know, re- amazing engineers or amazing designers are being sort of tempted to other, other seas, then actually that's, it's a real problem from our perspective, I think. Does that make you look harder in the UK? Can you look in places that you haven't look, looked yet in the UK because of that, just to play devil's advocate? I mean, Potentially, but I mean, from our perspective, you want the you want the best people. So you you kind of I don't really care if they're from you know Germany or from Norfolk. Do you know what I mean? Like uh, it doesn't really matter where people are kind of from if they can do the best job that we sort of need them to do, which I, I guess is where probably the the difference between probably my opinion and the opinion of the movement that we're sort of going with right now, which is you know, this is where we're going. This is, And I, I feel like on this, there's almost a, I feel like this is an eventuality now. I feel like I, I you, uh, adaptability and making the best of the situation means maybe we have an office in Amsterdam. Maybe we have to have a office in Paris. Maybe, you know, maybe those are things we have to do to follow that talent to where it is best, you know, served or best created a marketplace, you know. I mean, from Norwich, I can get to Amsterdam quicker than I can get to London anyway. So maybe that's a good thing to do. All right, we'll talk about talent a little bit more in a second, though. So for those who don't know, Finnovate Spring is happening in San Francisco on May the 27th to the 29th. It's built around live seven-minute demos of the fintech innovators. And if you head over to the West Coast, uh, this is thought of as the premier fintech event. Network with more than 1,200 senior-level attendees, with more than 50% from financial institutions, from Midwest to Western United States, Latin America, APAC, Canada, Australia, and all over the place. Uh, Gain insight from more than 120 experts on the future of finance. For more information, visit finnovatespring.com. If you use the 11FS code, you'll get a 20% discount at your registration. So drop in 11FS. All right, let's get back on with the show. Um, So speaking of talent, Chris had a particularly interesting point on this back in the first ever episode of Fintech Insider. Let's hear from him now. I thought a real point came home for me out of that conversation, which was, uh, what's the alternative if people want to move fintech away from London because we've had this Brexit vote? And the answer is fragmentation of the talent pool. Where's it going to go? Dublin, Berlin, Paris, Stockholm. I mean, you know, the reason why London is so successful is it's got the concentration of the structure of all of the aspects of what's needed to give you the regulatory, the legal, the compliance, the technology, the financial insights that you need to get startups started. You don't have that concentration, particularly across such a broad brush of financial services in those other cities. So you would end up with fintech fragmentation rather than concentration. I think this is really interesting. I mean, I think we're hit with a bit of a double whammy this year. There is obviously everything that's happening with Brexit. Then we have things like the IR35 changes that are kind of happening. I mean, if I was a 
an engineer who was from France, I wouldn't be hit, being hit, and a contractor at that, I'd be hit with a double whammy. I've got a, a city telling me to not be here. I've got a much more negative view of personal liability and the, the potential tax situation that I can benefit from within the city as well. It just feels like we're doing we're doing everything we can to sort of shove really, really talented people kind of out of the country, which is, again, from a – if you look at the ingredient that has been sort of most dense in London particularly, it is all of that talent kind of in, intertwined into mix, whether it's creative or technology or just frustrated bankers thinking things could get better. So, I mean, I, I really do worry about this one. If, if one from 11FS's perspective specifically, talent is the one that I'm most worried about really. I'm really interested in that point you make about uh, IR35 combining that with Brexit. I hadn't thought of that before, but IR35 is it's very interesting to see how that's going to play out and you know potentially worrying as well depending on your perspective because mm-hmm. of course this is supposed to you know quite reasonably capture people who are avoiding tax when they should be taxed like employees. But we've already seen from the way city employers are reacting to it that it's going to capture all sorts of people who are actually much closer to genuine freelancers and, you know, maybe are genuine freelancers. So what if all of those people move on to payroll or give up and get ordinary jobs, what effect does that have on on the economy uh, and indeed financial services, which is probably one of the sectors that most relies on that type of talent. It'd be really interesting to hear even how you guys have uh, have you know, are, are handling that. What do you do? How are you going to handle contractors now? I mean, in the short term, it's it's a very difficult situation for, for people to kind of figure out because essentially, like you say, the, the liability very much moves from an employee's perspective, uh, employer's perspective to an employee's. Um, so, the impact for me is less worrying about whether they all go from uh, contractors to having perm jobs, but whether they go from contractors to who are uh, European or further afield to going, actually, this is too hard. I'm being you know, punished now. And on top of this, I'm now being felt, I know, now I feel like the country doesn't want me here in the first place. So the drain that that brings, yeah. and, and really the opportunity that brings to, to sort of other cities who potentially can create a much more advantageous uh, tax system or, you know, really dial up the magnet when it comes to, I mean, if you look at what Paris has done, kind of all of the, what was it, station, there's a number. Station F. There we go, Station F, yeah. yeah. Uh, it wasn't a number, it was a letter. I always get those mixed up. Um, Station F, you know, for really sort of turning up the magnet for talent and opportunities, you know, throw in a couple of tax advantages and then you'll find Paris really filling up. So, I mean, it, it is a um, it is a real worry. You can have a great, you know, system from, you know, regulatory or whatever perspective to, to sort of make change happen. But unless there's the people here to do the work at the quality that you need it to be done, then that's really difficult. I think the other thing, I mean, to, to emphasize Chris's point really here is because there is, it's not like people are moving from London, everybody's not moving from London to one place, which ultimately makes is either going to be a great thing for all of those other geographies because there's going to be little seeds sown everywhere of of innovative thinking in the way that it was has been done here or it's going to mean everywhere gets kind of a, a diluted version of of what's happened so i guess i guess we don't know but i really hate to see talent leaving the country yeah i agree and 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 you know i think maybe picking up on chris's point as well 
I think there's a multiplier. I think when you've got everybody sort of concentrated in in one small space and then you've got networking events and you've got meetups and you've got referrals like, hey, you're you're a contractor and actually, you know, we're doing this really cool thing at 11FS and I know you're good because you've come recommended from somebody else. And David, I, I totally get your point because, you know, I think how we differentiate as a business is on talent. Right. And, and, you know, we always want to keep that talent bar as high as we possibly can. And, and actually, that's fine in itself. But if what we're doing now is putting obstacles in front of people, then, you know, that's that is a threat. That's a worry. Mm. Yeah, I mean, a big thing with IR35 is particularly how you do fixed term contracts. So you almost can't truly integrate people into the organization exactly. if they're on one of those fixed term contracts because they're not really involved in the culture of the company. And, and it's it's these unintended consequences that you see with things that happen from a regulatory perspective that I think just make it much, much more difficult for, you know, medium-sized enterprises to do interesting things and get the best people through the door. What's interesting about that is that, as we were talking about earlier, the sort of fear in the EU is that we sort of deregulate and become a very attractive place for businesses to come to, to their detriment. I, I think that's quite unlikely, actually. And uh, in terms of employment, regulations are actually stronger here than in some EU member states and also uh, ahead of Brexit you saw Mark Carney and Andrew Bailey the chief executive of the FCA of course incoming bank governor strengthening financial regulations and I'd say it's yeah, it's pretty unlikely that that's going to get watered down post Brexit who knows maybe, maybe I'm wrong um, so that kind of leaves less room for manoeuvre so what you don't want is a world where we've got there's no movement on regulation but you've got a lot less talent and you're kind of in worst of both worlds from a, from an employer's point of view at least. Yeah, I think so. What do you think, Emily? I mean, I think it, it, it almost, like what James has just said then contributes back to what I was talking about earlier in that like nobody's just going to, there just won't be London bases anymore. Not London headquarters anyway because for example, then there's a fintech startup that everybody will be familiar with called Azimo that do remittances. Um, 130 of their 160 staff are in Poland. And that they still call themselves a London startup, but actually, n- not really. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of that is due to the fact that talent for technical staff in Eastern European countries is just a lot more widely available, and it comes, like to be fair, a lot cheaper than it would do in London. Um, but also, I think like going forward, and obviously with things like IR35 and how you would hire these people, most technical staff engineers they're usually contractors. They they might be an employee of your company, but more often than not, most engineers work on a contract basis. And if you remove the possibility for that to happen in London, even in the slightest way, just by putting another obstacle in front of them, it will contribute more and more to companies thinking, well, I need to have an Eastern European base or somewhere else mm-hmm. outside of London so that they can at least have the chance to get that talent in. Yeah. I mean, that that is always a, I mean, it's uh, from, from our perspective, it's always an interesting balancing act because like you say, from a cultural perspective, contractors are contractors, but I mean, from my personal perspective, I don't really care. Do you know what I mean? It's you're there to, people are there to do the thing that they're there to do, whether they're part of the company as a full-time employee or whether they're a contractor on a fixed term or otherwise, you know. And it's, I mean, it's an interesting balancing act because especially when you're creating a company that we focus so much on culture, you really, whether it's a contractor or a, you know, a man who comes one time to put up the Christmas tree, like we, we want to make sure that they feel part of the thing when they're in the thing. 
which is really, really difficult when actually you've got regulation saying you're not allowed to do that. You know, if you went to the strict letter of the law, people couldn't turn up to town halls, which is just bizarre. Do you know what I mean? Like if it's not something that in the new uh, view of how IR35 is to be outside of IR35 from a contract perspective, people couldn't turn up to a company gathering because it wasn't part of the contract, which is crazy, you know, just absolutely crazy. And you've got contractors who can't come to Christmas parties because they're not allowed to from a contractual perspective. And actually for an industry, my, my biggest worry on all of this, if I'm honest with you, and actually if you look at the, either from a personal perspective from 11FSs or from a broader ecosystem from FinTech's perspective in London is this whole thing has been built on community. You know, this whole thing has been built on a really vibrant, I mean, from the office that we're in right now, you can chuck a stone and hit on Fido and Starling and Monzo and UBS and RBS and like, you know, fintech financial services and everything that's kind of here is just all here. And it's not just here as in like the big buildings, but it's in the bars, like after work where everybody's mingling and everybody's talking and all, you know. Every night there's a fintech event going on in London and it brings people together. Um, the sad thing about all of this is it kind of just moves people further and further apart. I, I completely agree with that. You feel like you're part of something. And, and actually, so taking it back to your point about contractors as well and how we integrate them into the company and how we integrate them into delivery teams. And, and you know, engineering is a really, a really good example, Emily, to your point, is it's that that's the differentiator because that's what makes them believe in the outcome that we're trying to achieve versus it just being a contract and we've seen this every single day every single team that we put together it's that culture and 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 ways of working and how we approach things um, and how inclusive those teams are that gets everybody sort of lined up behind driving towards that that final outcome um, and i think if you lose that you do lose that sort of key edge that that little differentiator I guess okay. the one bit of good news perhaps is that, you know, maybe it's better to have this fragmentation than to have one very obvious capital rival that everyone could just go to and have all their problems solved. You know, London has so many strengths still from being a regulatory centre to having all this entrepreneurial talent to be, as you say, being a global financial centre. That's why we've had this explosion of fintech companies. And although Brexit may harm that to an extent, that isn't going away overnight and to the point that was made, there isn't an obvious place that has all of those qualities overseas. So, you know, that's something to cling on to at least, I think. But I don't, I don't think that's far away from happening. It's, it's like you said, David, with Station F on its way, mm. and at least in France, President Macron is making a real effort to try and pitch Paris as a tech haven now. It doesn't take much, at least, well, in the grand scheme of things, how long Brexit's going to take us to really hammer it out and get it finished and agreed and get London to a more peaceful point. In that same time, Paris could reinvent parts of its regulatory environment mm. and mm. really become a hub for tech startups that London once was. So even if, like, yes, one scenario is that these talented people will go out piecemeal to various places, maybe overall Europe will just become better. But I don't think it's actually too unbelievable to think that we could just also be establishing a London rival right now. If Macron can achieve, achieve the, you know, what seems like potentially impossible of reforming French uh, employment regulations. (laughs) Everybody has some hurdles to get over. So, I mean, I I agree with you, James. It's it's not over yet, right? I mean, it's not over yet from what we think Brexit actually is and will be and how it all plays out and who's in charge when it's actually finished as well, right? But, um, you know, I think if you look at other 
geographies that have had a couple of cracks at becoming the you know the sort of fan, uh, the fantastical sort of fintech capital, then um, there's always something within those ingredients that's kind of missing. Whether it's the we do still have one of the most progressive regulators that really you know fosters change. We do still have lots of big organisations based here who have lots of problems. For now, there's lots of talent still here. We'll see what happens. Mm. But I guess it's. I mean, I think my overarching sort of feeling on this to try and put a positive note on it uh, to end it with is that there are so many people that I think have benefited in so many big companies, the Bank of England, the FCA. I mean, the uh, the, the government themselves have benefited, even, you know, Boris himself in terms of his reputation uh, as mayor being so fintech friendly. It kind of feels like the the job that was set out from 2008 to give much more of a competition mandate from a UK perspective isn't done yet. So I'm hoping people haven't like forgot the strategy in and amongst all of these tactics. So uh, to put a positive spin on it, then uh, hopefully, you know, am I, am I really going to say gonna keep say calm you, and carry you, on? But you know, your mouth is saying positive, but your eyes aren't. <laughs> it's it's now more in hope than expectation. I worry that when when Boris Johnson comes out and he, he says, you know, yeah, we want a, a Canada-style free trade agreement and that's ultimately – those are the terms that we want to exit on. Well, the Canada um, the Canada free trade agreement that we, ha- that we have um, in place today takes very good into consideration goods, you know. Um, it doesn't extend to services as such. And, you know, obviously financial services are such an important part of the UK economy that that feels like quite a big oversight at this stage, considering, you know, time is of the essence now. And also the Canada deal is predicated on the fact that Canada's quite a long way away from Europe Correct. and you would do a different negotiation with uh, quite a large economy that's on your doorstep, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we did something like nearly 50% of all of our trade in 2018 with Europe and then an additional 11% with people that have free trade agreements with the EU. So um, that's huge. That's our single biggest trading partner. And we're talking about getting a free trade agreement that only covers goods. And that's the biggest biggest reference point that we have. And also that we're going to get this wrapped up by the end of this year, which anyone can attest to being a crazy, crazy deadline. We haven't got off to a great start with this either. I think it's worth bearing in mind because the EU has set out quite detailed uh, approach to the negotiations already. And in the meantime, you know, the, our government has done nothing other than Boris's fairly kind of blustering speech the other day where he was still trying to get the message across that Brexit is done. But we don't really know exactly how they're going to approach this and what the details going to be. I must admit I haven't read it, but there was a very detailed section in the EU's approach to financial services. What is the British approach? We don't know yet. We'll see. I mean, taking a bit more of a British approach all round sounds quite good to me. A little bit less waving flags in uh, the European uh, Union and, uh, you know, a little bit more focusing on what we're what we're doing. So, all right. I mean, on quite a sombre note at that stage, I guess we'll wait and see what happens. But um, that wraps up today's discussion. Thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find out a little bit more about you, Emily? Um, so you can find me on Twitter at Emily J. Nicole, or you can read all my stories on com as well. Very good. James? Likewise, so I'm in The Times. Uh, if you don't want to have the paywall, though, you can see a little bit of what I'm saying on Twitter, at James Hurley. Very good. And Mr Gallagher? Yeah, 11fs.com, and I'm on at Ross Gallagher 7 on Twitter. 
And you can find me over on LinkedIn these days. So head over and if you don't know my name by now, then you never will. Uh, thank you for listening. If you want to join the discussion, find us over on social media at Fintech Insiders on Twitter and find us on Facebook, Instagram, Periscope, YouTube. I mean, pretty much everywhere at that stage. Just Google us. It's probably easier, isn't it? As usual, don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss one of these episodes. And if you really, really love what we're up to, then please leave us a review. I think we've had just over 200 of them right now which is pretty damn good going. All right, that's all for this week. Goodbye. Keeping up with all the noise and news from the world of financial services isn't easy. It's easy to get lost in buzzwords, jargon, and industry speak. So sometimes you just need a quick human rundown of the biggest stories. Well, you are in luck. Bite-sized is our very own weekly newsletter that takes the biggest news stories from financial services and tells you exactly what's happening, why it matters, and what comes next. Bite-sized goes out every Friday at 11am, so you can enjoy it with a coffee as you wrap up your week. Stay up to speed with the fast-moving world of financial services and subscribe today at 11fs.com forward slash newsletters. That's 11fs.com forward slash newsletters.